All right, so let's go ahead and get started with a word of prayer, and we'll dig in what Jesus has for us today. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your heart. I thank you for your good news. I thank you for all the things that you bring to bear in our life, and I pray that today, as we are in a field as a church, uh, we would be centered on you. And so we love you, thank you, praise you today, and your good and awesome name. Amen. Man, I don't have as much stage to pace around on. I don't, I don't even know what I'm going to do, right? Well, it's good to see all of you out here today under the tent here to enjoy Jesus because as a church, for us, it is all about Jesus, right? That is the place that we plant our flag. That's the place we care about. What I find at times is when we say the name Jesus, uh, that, that, that name, just that word Jesus, that name Jesus has all sorts of different filters that, that people sort of apply as soon as they hear the name. So some people hear the name Jesus and they first think of a friend. Others think about Jesus and they think about a sage or a healer or a prophet or a teacher or a humanitarian. Some people like us as evangelicals, the first place our mind really goes is that Jesus is the God man, that Jesus is literally, truly, and fully God, comes into the world as a man for us. Those are all the different filters that people sort of use when they think about Jesus. But I think one of the filters, and all these filters are accurate depending on your point of view, but, but I think of all the filters, one of the filters that I really gravitate to, one of the labels of Jesus that I find in my own life means a great deal, is the idea that Jesus was the uber storyteller. And yes, I used uber to bring back 2009 just for you those fans, all right? So... He is the uber storyteller. He loves to tell stories. And I love the stories that Jesus tells because at the core, what he seeks to do in his storytelling is very simple. He wants to attract those who are interested and equally at the same time sort of repel those who are not. And in fact, it tells us that in the Gospels that for the seeker, they hear these stories of Jesus, these very simple, basic stories, and the spiritual truth just clicks. They just get it. It's like, oh, I know what he's talking about. But for the skeptic, for the doubter, for the critical, they hear those stories and it just goes over their head. They don't understand what the meaning is, what the significance is. And so Jesus used storytelling as the predominant vehicle of communicating his word to the masses. He just told stories all the time. And, and, and all these stories, they usually open the same way. They would open with something like, the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of God is like, and it would be dot, dot, dot. And then he would use very familiar things. He would use the kingdom of heaven is like a seed or like a treasure or like a pearl. It's like a coin. It's like a family. All these different descriptors. In fact, one of his favorites is the kingdom of heaven is like a field. Welcome to the field, all right? right? He loves to use that descriptor and that story. The kingdom of heaven is like a field. And then he would give this very practical, down-to-earth truth. And, and I believe the reason that Jesus would use such simple, everyday things in his teaching, like coins and fields and seeds and water, is because at the core, here's what Jesus wants of our life. He wants our every day in every way. He wants our every day in every way. So he uses stories about the every day in every way so that we will say, oh, I get it. You don't just want my religious obligation. You don't simply want my weekly duty. You don't simply want my creed. You don't simply want my money. You want me and you want everything about me. 
See, that's what Jesus seeks. And so he tells these stories, saying, I want you in every way, every day. And so he would open up, the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, in our culture, we hear that and we go, oh, okay, so the stories about the kingdom of heaven, they must be about literally this place beyond this world we call heaven. It must be all about that place. It's not about this place. Well, if you actually understand the way Jesus would use the phrase and his culture, it, it meant more to them than sometimes we realize. In fact, if Jesus was to come here today, be a part of Redemption Church, preach in this field, he might tell these stories, but the story would open up a little bit different. I'm not so certain he would say the kingdom of heaven is like. He would speak to us in Duval in the way that we would really understand what that opening phrase means. So, for example, maybe he would open like this. Instead of the kingdom of heaven is like, he would say the life you truly seek is like. Or maybe he would say the real change you need in life is like. The way to break the chains in your life is like. The dream you've always dreamed is like. The tipping point you keep hoping for every single day is like. Or maybe you would say, that thing that will change everything is like. And then he would tell the story with familiar things. So he'd say, that dream you always dreamed is like a coffee cozy. Right? Or because it would be in Duval, he'd say, that thing you've always waited for as the tipping point is like the special at Ixtapa, right? Because he would pick the thing that's familiar, right? This life you need so badly is like that hundred-year flood that comes every three years, right? That's what he would use. He would use the familiar. He would use the tangible. He would use the practical to get our attention and say, I am the source. I am the one you need for this thing that you most seek. Because again, at the core, what Jesus is not interested in is just us having this religious adherence. He wants our everything in every way, every day. So he tells these very everyday, simple stories to get our attention. And so with that, on one particular occasion, Jesus tells a story. So there's this guy, and he goes out into a field, and he begins to work. Right? So he's just some working stiff. He's a blue-collar guy. It's not his field. He's just working. He's just doing his thing. He's just digging. He's moving rocks. He's digging holes. He's doing stuff. He keeps working the field, digging away, digging away. And then one day, he's like, hey, there's something under there that isn't just a rock. There's something different than everything else I'm doing. And again, understand, this guy doesn't suspect it. He doesn't, he's not expecting anything in life. He's just a working stiff. He's doing his job. He's digging. He's working. And then suddenly he hits this thing. And from that, it says he notices as he turns the dirt over that it's a treasure. It's a treasure. And this treasure he sees. And instantly there's joy that fills his heart. So it says he covers the treasure over. And then he goes home and he sells everything that he has. He liquidates everything. And then once he liquidates everything, it says he goes and he buys the field. And then from that receives the treasure. Now, Jesus says it more rapidly than I do. I cannot quick talk as, as abbreviated as Jesus. He's awesome. I'm not. So here's how he said it in an abbreviated way. He said, the kingdom of heaven, that life you seek, that dream you dream, that real change you need, that tipping point in life, 
is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then he covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys the field. Matthew 13, 44, one verse. Jesus tells an entire story in one verse. I can't even tell my wife what I want for dinner in that abbreviated. But Jesus says everything in one single verse. Now, we read that story sometimes, and here's the problem as Western Christians. We read that story or hear that story, and the first thing we ask is, well, is that very moral? Right? Like, is that ethical? Like this dude, it's somebody else's field. He finds something in somebody else's field. He covers it up. He goes, he sells everything, buys the field to get the treasure. Shouldn't he have just told the dude that owned the field, hey, by the way, there's a treasure in your field. Right? We get all wrapped up in the ethics of this. But here's the deal. In their culture, right, if you came across some item buried in somebody else's field, it's like salvage rights. If you found it, you get it because they didn't know it was there either, right? This is just the law they had. So this guy is an unethical. As soon as the guy finds the treasure, he can take it out of the ground, take it home, and it's just his. See, that is within the law. That would be totally ethical. But this guy goes a step further. Even though he has salvage rights, he can take the treasure, he can take it home, he can keep it as his. He says, no, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to cover it over. I'm going to liquidate. I'm going to take all of that, buy the field, and from that, get the treasure. The guy is immensely moral when the law is on his side just to take it. But see, that's not really the moral of the story, right? It's not about legal issues. It's not about moral loopholes. It's none of that. Really, what it's about is... What treasure do you most seek in life? What thing really matters most? And understand the nature of the story. This treasure that the man finds in the field. He's he's not going to just take that treasure and instantly liquidate the treasure and be crazy rich. That's not the goal. In fact, to give you another context, imagine it's like a man who goes to a vacant house And he's just looking at the house and looking at the rooms and maybe he'll buy and maybe he won't. But he goes down into the basement and he sees the tarp and he pulls up the tarp and underneath it, it's an original Monet. And so he sees the painting. Now the house is empty. Man, the owners are gone. He could just go and leave with the painting, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he says, I must buy the house to have the treasure in the basement. Now, once he has that treasure, he's going to hang that Monet on the wall. And it's not like he can take that and just liquidate it and live filthy the rest of his life. He can, but that's not the motive for why he wants it. He wants it because it's beauty. He wants it because it captures his attention. He wants it because it gives him deep emotion. He wants it because it fills his soul. It's like a muse to his life. It is a treasure that is priceless because of what it does in his soul. That's the treasure that Jesus is talking about in this story. It's not one that you go and sell and, again, just retire. This man buys the field to have a treasure that he will never sell, that he will not make a penny on, that he will not go and retire with. He just wants the treasure. Right? That's the heart behind this whole thing. And so when you look at the story, you have three things. You have an unsuspecting discovery. The guy's just cruising along. One day, doesn't even know there's a treasure, comes across it. Unsuspecting discovery. With that, he has an unbridled response. Quickly covers it up, goes, he sells everything for joy. For joy. And then with that, there is an unwavering commitment. Unwavering, right? Because he's literally going to liquidate his entire estate. He's going to get rid of all of his treasures for one treasure. For one treasure. Imagine that. 
right? I mean, you, you see, I think about my own life. Like, let's say the same scenario happens to me, right? So I come across some treasure, and I've just got to have it, whatever it is, right? It's not a treasure I'm going to make a bunch of money on. It's just this thing, this object, this desired just item. And so I'm going to go home and, and, and literally go to my wife and say, you know what, um, we're selling it all, baby, right? All of it. All of it. And we got to sell it fast, all right? Because I found this thing. She said, great, it's going to make us rich. No, it's just going to make us really poor, but it will hang on the wall. It'll move our deepest emotions. It will give us the greatest sense of peace and joy in life, but we won't really have anything else but a field and this thing hanging in it. And then imagine the task of liquidating. It's like, all right, honey, uh, you take the Duval Trading Post, I'll take Craigslist and eBay, and we'll just start posting right? I've seen some of you on the Duval trading thing. You have an addiction. Just <laughs> saying that in love publicly. You know who you are. All right. So, right. Or Craigslist, right? Or eBay. You know. So, but imagine that. I mean, imagine if you went home to sell everybody, everything you have. How many hundreds of posts, thousands of posts, how long it would take to get rid of everything, to sell everything, your house, your car, all the items inside, because you found this one treasure see that's what this guy does right because of this one thing and then think of the faith involved not only is there the sense of surrender i must have this one thing so i'll get rid of all these things for the one thing but on top of that there's immense faith because this guy doesn't even know if the owner of the field knows of the treasure right so this guy might get all of his money goes run into the owner buys the field goes to find the treasure grabs his shovel starts digging and he realizes oh, the owner always knew the treasure was there too and he took it on the way out the door Right? Then he'd be like, oh, sweet, now I got this field. No treasure. But, 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 but there's faith involved. He just believes it's, it's still going to be there. So there's surrender, there's faith. But then also in this, there's this certainty. He's certain that to give up all of the other treasures in his life will, 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 will pale in comparison to the one treasure he receives. Right? That that one thing that one item that one gift will matter more than all the other things that he has banked his life on for contentment joy security fulfillment hope and peace he knows now this thing will do more than these other things in my life all the wares and wants and treasures of this earth so he says i happily part with all to have this this kingdom now, what makes this kingdom special isn't its location. It, really, what makes the kingdom special is its king. In fact, when you read all the stories of Jesus and he says the kingdom of heaven is like or the kingdom of God is like, you really should read those more from the perspective of Jesus is like. These are describing far more who God is, far more who Jesus is, that it's all about Jesus. That's really what these describe. And so what we learn from this story is five things about Jesus, really quick. Five things that make all the difference. Five things that if we take ownership of these in our life, which is sometimes so hard to do, but if we take ownership of these, it forever changes life. The first truth is this. Jesus is subtle. Jesus is subtle. In other words, here, here's what we want so often. What we want especially if we don't know Jesus. What we want is if God is true, if Jesus is true, we want him to go full on Chuck Norris, kick in our spiritual door and say, I'm real, right? 
right? We just want full Chuck all the way. You got to prove it, show it, skywriting, big voice, light show, thunder, lightning, everything. Prove me wrong that you're real. That's what we want. But Jesus is like a treasure buried in a field where that guy unsuspectingly comes along and discovers. Here's the thing about Jesus. More often than not, it's not the big booming voice. It's the still quiet voice. It's not the obvious proof. It's that pull in your heart, that sense that maybe, yes, indeed, he's true and he's right and he's the way. And you just, there's something just kind of pulling you, pulling you along little by little. That's the way God loves to work. He loves to work that way. And some of you may be sitting there and you're saying, you know what? Here's the deal. I'm waiting to be absolutely convinced before I make that step. When I'm totally convinced that he is real, I will make that step. Here's something I've realized painfully in my life. It's not till you make that step that you will be absolutely convinced. Most people are not absolutely convinced to enter into a relationship with Jesus. It's once they enter the relationship, then they become absolutely convinced. And part of that means by continually going to the relationship. The more you cultivate your walk with Christ, the more you seek Jesus in your life, the more there's a sense of him being real. If it's casual, if it's when it fits my life, man, there's not always that sense. But if we come in faith, man, he fills in the gaps to where it becomes confidence. And the more we seek him, the more confident we become. But see, this is all about, again, Jesus operates subtly like a treasure buried. Hundreds of people walked over that treasure. Hundreds of people, they didn't notice it, right? Because it's not always obvious. It's not always screaming at you. It's just this, this soft draw, this slight, subtle word speaking into your heart that says, I'm real. Turn to me. Jesus is subtle. The second thing we see in this story is that Jesus is priceless. He's priceless, right? I mean, that's the essence of the treasure, right? That one treasure is worth more than all the other treasures the man has. But again, it's a treasure like a muse. It's a treasure that stirs your emotions. It's not a treasure you're going to go and sell and live off of. It's a treasure that changes everything, though, everything. And, and see, what I even find in life, that what's interesting about it is that it's far more emotive than economic. And, and why I think that's interesting is because sometimes the treasures we give more value to the treasures we actually can sell for a price, those treasures, instead of filling us up like they think we think they will, they actually deplete us if we glob onto those too much. In fact, it was interesting, I was thinking about it this week. Um, the largest gold mine in the world is in Indonesia, right? So I was doing all this research on it. I was trying to understand how do they pull out the gold, everything else. It's the most boring thing in the world, I'll tell you. When you're thinking like a gold mine, world's biggest gold mine, you're thinking big veins of gold, big nuggets the size of your fist and all this stuff. You can't even see the gold in this mine. It's so microscopic, they have to just pull out tons of dirt and then kind of sift it out to get these little flakes of gold that they can eventually melt down. So I started doing more research on it. Here, here's what really broke my heart about this, all right? So a pound of gold is about the size of a Ghirardelli's chocolate. Does that not break your heart, right? About this size, inch and a half by an inch and a half by a third of an inch. That's a pound of gold, right? And let me put it in perspective. The mine that they mine one pound of gold out of, that tent right there, the, the area of that tent, they have to pull that much area of dirt to get that much gold. 
right? So it's just so small in comparison. But man, they just dig and dig and sift, and people die in this mine, and everybody gives their life for this little chunk of riches, right? And we think, man, this kind of treasure in life, the treasures that this will afford me, that'll do everything. Right? We chase it. American dream. Lots of money. If I just had a few more bucks, I would be content. I would be at peace. But here's the thing. We can mine all the, all the gold in the world, have all the treasure amassed, and here's the bottom line. All those treasures, they still can't soothe the soul. All those treasures, they can't heal a broken heart. All those treasures, they can't restore a relationship or forgive our foolish or sinful deeds. They can't impart eternity. Just can't do it. All the money in the world cannot reestablish trust when trust is broken through infidelity. All the money in the world cannot save our child from an addiction. All the money in the world cannot bring peace in the midst of calamity or sorrow. It just can't do that. It cannot generate the things we most need. In fact, what we find is so often the treasures of this world usually cause a lot of the pain more than solve it, right? They cause a lot of the hardship. They don't heal it. And so when Jesus says, oh, I have a treasure that is far more valuable than all of these treasures, it's why we say it's priceless. It's priceless because it lifts the burdens that nothing else can. So what do we treasure, Right? Because Jesus says, I will offer you a treasure that can do things that nothing else ever will be able to do, ever could do. So he says, you're better off to seek that treasure, right? Now here's the thing about this priceless gift that he offers, this treasure in the field, this good news of his kingdom, this thing that changes everything. It is truly priceless, and it is offered freely, but here's the thing that Jesus says, this free gift actually will cost you everything. The free gift actually costs. It doesn't cost your good works. It doesn't mean you can earn your way. It's none of that. Here's how Jesus said it in Luke 14, 33. He says, if you do not renounce all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. Right? The man in the story, he sells all. Right? He renounces everything. What Jesus seeks of our lives is this attitude of liquidation, right? Where we say, all right, everything I have is yours. I, I went through this about two weeks ago. I was laying in bed one night, and I was just had a lot of anguish, and just, man, I was praying like crazy, and like, God, what's my deal? And I, I'm trying to understand what you're up to and everything else. And, and it was like, man, almost audibly says, hey, Matt, you know what? You trust me with your daughters, but you don't trust me with your wife, and you don't trust me with your son. Uh, you need to trust me more because they are treasures, and I am your treasure. And, and you need to let me have all of your treasures. You can't decide, well, I can have some of your treasures, but not other parts of your treasures. I want all of your treasures, Matt, and I will be your one treasure. And I will take care of all of your other treasures. Because that's the interesting thing about Jesus that I love. Um, he doesn't just take with his left hand and keep. He takes all of our treasures with his left, but then gives us the treasure with his right. Right? And he says, um, I'm going to give you more than you even realized. More than you even realized. Because I'm your treasure. I'm priceless. And so that's what he seeks, right? But it costs us everything. What this means is Jesus is resolution. Not only is he subtle, not only is he priceless, he is resolution. 
And so resolution is that thing that says, I give it all to you. I give it all to you. Now, does that mean we can't enjoy life? Sure we can. That's Ecclesiastes. Eat good food, drink good wine, enjoy the wife of your youth, hang out in a field, play games, throw balloons, do whatever you want. Enjoy life. Just don't think that in this life, this life will give you the deepest joy. It doesn't happen. So he says, enjoy life, but don't find life as a source of joy because you'll never find it anyway. And because I have something greater to give you. And that is the truth that Jesus has also exchanged. The fourth thing. Jesus is exchange. In other words, what he says is, all right, Matt, I love you. I want all of your treasures. I go, great. You can have all my treasures. You can have my wife. You can have my kids. You can have my life. You can have my money. You can have my house. You can have my car. You can have everything. Take all my treasures. But part of that exchange, you know what he also says? He says also, I want all of your sins and all of your grief and all of your shame and all of your guilt and all of your failure and all of your history and all of your doubt. See, give me all of your liability as well as all of your assets. Give it all to me. I'm going to take all of it. I'm going to take all of it from you. And in exchange, I will give you this one great treasure that gives you all the blessings of eternity. I'll give you this one great treasure that frees you of all of your guilt and shame, that totally clean slates your history, that makes you a perfect standing in the sight of God. I will give all of that to you. And by the way, you still get to use your house. You still get to be married to your wife. You still get to raise your kids. You still get to have your car. You still get to have your money. You get to have all of that. It's just, you know what? Uh, you're a manager now, not a ruler. But you get so much more. So much more. That's the exchange. And why do we do it? Because Jesus says it's for joy. It's for joy. Right? Remember the story. It is for joy that the man sells everything and buys the treasure. Joy is the key. All of what I've been saying goes to this one focal point of when we do this, right? When we go, all right, Jesus, I just want what you offer. There is greater joy than anything else. And can I tell you what we most need in life is actually joy? See, what we most seek in life is happiness. Happiness, right? Think about how often we say it. I have a happy marriage. Uh, I have a happy life. Uh, and then when it's not, what do we say? I'm not very happy with my job. I'm not very happy with my kids right now. I'm not very happy with my spouse. I'm not very happy with my church. We, we use this word happy all the time. Can I tell you, happy is a fickle word that is driven purely by circumstance and conditions. So if I'm not happy, it means the conditions aren't right. If I'm not happy, the circumstance, it's just a drag. And I want to be happy. Here's the problem with happy. We shoot far too low wanting happy. When, when Jesus speaks, he doesn't speak in terms of happy. He speaks in terms of joy. Joy. And see, joy is very different because joy is the state of mind. It's the state of being that doesn't get dictated by circumstance. Joy is far deeper. I remember for the longest time, people would say that. I'd listen to preachers and they'd say, you know, happiness is cheap, but joy is deep. You know, and I'd be like, you're a poet and don't know it. You know? I, and like, I, I, I'd hear it and I'd be like, that's dumb. Yeah, it's dumb. Joy and happiness is a synonym. But then what, what Jesus did in his loving grace is he put me through some really bad times. Really bad times. Where you know what? I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy at all but I was joyful. I was joyful. And that joy was, was deep and profound. It's weird. Like sometimes where we want to get happiness, what do we do? We go to the happiest place on earth, right? So we, we, we go to Disneyland. We get mugged by Tigger. We get, you know, 
all those kinds of things because I'm going to be happy. What I find in life is those things, those places of happiness I go to, they wear off really, really quick. But I find in life my deepest, deepest joy is just like reading the Psalms on my back porch. My deepest joy is just sitting with my wife and talking about our faith together. That's my deepest joy. And, 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 and that joy, it sustains when everything else is coming apart, when the wheels are off the wagon, going different directions, everything else, there is still this thing that just says, man, though, there is a joy that is so untapped, unlike happiness, that just runs out so quick. See, that's what Jesus is offering. He wants you to have joy. In Romans 14, 17, it's a joy from the Holy Spirit. In John 15, 1 through 5, it flows from the presence of Christ and obedience to what he says. What I'm finding more and more and more is that this joy that Jesus promises is so easy to receive and experience if we seek him every day in every way. Again, if it's casual, it'll elude us. But, but, but if we, we look with the same mindset of Jesus and we say, what I really want to do is I want to downsize to joy instead of kind of upsize to happiness. That's what we do as Americans. We keep upgrading and upsizing and upscaling to find happiness and then we never find it. And then Jesus says, but if you downsize, there's joy. You just have one treasure and I'll handle everything else. He says, there is true joy. But it's only available when Jesus is first Jesus is sought and Jesus is obeyed. It's that simple. Often we miss it, though, because we're too preoccupied to seek it or we're too material to surrender to it. We're too doubtful to believe it or too controlling to trust it, too undisciplined to stick with it or too distracted to realize it. That's what happens. That's what happens in my own life. I see it so often at these seasons where, man, everything's fire and I'm close to Jesus. And that's because I'm seeking him every day in every way so that he has everything. And then there's other times where I'm not seeking him every day in every way to have everything. I'm seeking me. I'm seeking my family. I'm seeking whatever else, my ego. And man, he gets distant and I'm clinging to happiness instead of joy. And it's unfulfilling. Unfulfilling. And so what Jesus says in this parable, this story is give all for me and give all to me. And when you do that, you will get even more from me. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the story of a field where a man realizes that there is this treasure that everybody else has passed by and not noticed and everything else, but he sees that treasure and he wants that treasure above all else. And Jesus, you are that treasure. And I pray that we as your people would hold to you as that treasure that we go to every day. And we say, here is everything in every way because we want your joy. I, I do, I, I look and I go, it's not that we're pleasure seekers, it's that we don't seek enough pleasure. We stop at happiness when there's something deeper, which is joy. And I pray that we will turn that corner and come to that place where we want joy way more than happiness, that we would invest in the downsizing to joy instead of how much we invest into the upscaling to happiness and it never pays off. And so Jesus, I pray that we will seek you, find you, know you, walk with you, hunger and thirst for you, be desperate for you every day, not be satisfied till we've come and tasted and seen that you are good and heard that still small voice and let you guide our heart in such a way that you are our number one, all-consuming, die-hard priority and that we love you above all else.
We want your very best. And so I pray for those who know you that that would be true. That they would long for you above all else. Thank you, Jesus, for your good news. Thank you for the gospel that we were about to hear and how that changes the lives of those who do not know you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.